welcome to this episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And Kelly, tell us what we're talking about today. This is, I'm pretty excited about this episode. So today we're going to talk about Carchetti, who's a super interesting character. And mm-hmm. I recently rewatched the entire series with my partner, who had never seen it before. And I kind of started noticing all these um, repetitions with Carchetti playing games. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay, great. And um, so you're saying that this has some sort of sort of literary significance. Yeah, so actually, this is sort of new information to me. I hadn't really heard of game theory until I started looking at games and literature. But I came across this concept of game theory, which is actually a little bit more related to sort of economics and international relations and things like that. And it started to make a lot of sense to what we see in The Wire. So game theory, for anyone who hasn't really heard that term before, this is from Investopedia. Game theory is a theoretical framework for conceiving social situations among competing players. In some respects, game theory is the science of strategy, or at least the optimal decision-making of independent and competing actors in a strategic setting. So basically, anything where people have sort of competing motives and are desiring a certain outcome based on their rival's choices could be considered something like a game. And I think, I mean, there's lots of examples of games throughout the wire, but Carchetti, that piece of it, strategy, he's definitely kind of the embodiment of strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And so, well, first of all, we see games all over the place in the wire. And you and I have talked about that with um, season one, episode five, where we just sort of a deep dive into that. And uh, the chess scene is super significant in the wire, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and do other, in other literatures, like or in other literature, is there um, examples of games sort of playing a significant role? Yeah, well, just to sort of define what a game is within game theory, you can either have like a one person game, which would be something like solitaire, a two-person game, which would be something like chess, or you can have an N-person game where N is like any number of people. So something like chess, each player knows everything about the game at all times, so that's like perfect information. Poker, you don't necessarily know the other player's cards, so that's imperfect information. So depending on the number of players and how much information you have, you can either have a constant sum outcome or you can have a variable sum outcome. So either a winner and a loser, or people who partly win and partly lose. And so depending on the sort of um, manifestations of the game in The Wire, I think we see people fully winning, fully losing, or somewhere in between a lot of the time. It's interesting because it's making me think of um, season one and season four, where there's kind of... In both of those, there's kind of this like, you know, new generation learning the game. So season one, like you said, is that chess game that they they have that great conversation with D'Angelo where he pushes them from playing checkers to chess. But then I'm also thinking about in season four when Presbo is teaching probability and the kids learn really quickly that they can use the, this to like 
play dice and win money. Um, and so I wonder if there's a significance in it being in that season one, there's this um, zero sum game where there is a, there's a winner and a loser. And then in, in dice, there is, you know, multiplicity to that. Yeah, definitely. And um, to go back to your point about, are there examples of games in literature? We've talked about crime fiction before on our podcast, and crime fiction is a perfect example of a sort of game in literature because not only is the detective character sort of puzzling it out, but the reader is also participating in that puzzle. So um, Presbolewski, for example, um, flat out mentions like literally that he enjoys puzzles and puzzle solving, and it's his word search method that helps him crack the code of the pagers. Yes, definitely. Should we watch that scene? It's really good. Okay, here we go. I beeped you. I didn't get it. Let me see. Well, you want to see my pager? Yeah. Sure, Prez, you want to see my pager? I beeped you, too. You all right, Prez? 7143432. I got that. That was you? Did you try it? Yeah, I tried it twice. Now I'm working number. It would have worked if you knew the code. I'm as surprised as you. I like word search puzzles. You know where you gotta find the hidden words? So I thought I could do the same thing with the numbers. Take the number I sent you. Mm -hmm. Now, take the seven, jump it over the five. You get three. Jump the one over the five. You get nine. With four, you get six. Three, that's seven. Four is six. A three again, and two is eight. Zero switches with the five. So seven, one, four, three, four, three, two is three, nine, six, seven, six, seven, eight, our number. And that's the code. Yeah, and it works because it's all about where the buttons are on a phone. If it was a code that involved math or algebra or whatever, these little yo's in the projects wouldn't be able to follow along. But with this, all you gotta do is jump the five button. <laughs> Ain't no math to it, it's just how the phone looks when you look at it. Press, you little genius. <laughs> Jesus, I could kill you, that's so good. <laughs> I love that scene so much. And he really, I mean, that is the pivotal sort of moment to crack the code of the case. Yeah. And this is one of the first times that we see Presbolewski being competent, actually. Mm -hmm. And he's able to sort of prove himself. But it's kind of, I guess, funny in a way that it's through games, which you might think of as being a bit juvenile in a way. Um, but it's that sort of childlike behavior that helps him crack the code. And that speaks to detective or crime fiction where the detective is really kind of working out a puzzle. Absolutely. Well, and all through the wire, like, as you alluded to already there, there's a lot of talk. I mean, they, they view life as the game as well, right? Yeah, definitely. And 
they are sometimes referred to as players. Like we hear Avon Barksdale referred to as a West Side player in season one. Yep. And they also talk about the rules, like Omar never on no Sunday. Um, well, Omar has lots of rules about how Omar he- is a really great example of game theory because he says a man must have a code, which is essentially sort of saying that someone must have rules. And game theory kind of rests on the idea that people are abiding by a certain set of rules. And what's interesting about Omar's rules and how, you know, adamant he is about sticking to them is that it really is because of the adherence to the rules of the game that in season four, Marlo isn't able to pull his like his game on Omar, which is to frame him for a murder of a of a delivery woman. Well, and also that a lot of that storyline takes place around this poker game that Omar ends up hijacking, I guess you could say. It's kind of a parallel to this idea of a game with imperfect information. Yes, absolutely. And in season one, the basketball game between Eastside and Westside is, I think, really interesting because it shows how Avon within the game adheres to certain rules. For instance, when the referee says, oh, I'll put time back on the clock, you know, we'll have a do-over. That's absolutely, like, uh, like not going to happen in Avon's mind because he just says that's n- not how the game is played. Yep. And that's actually a pretty intense scene, too. Should we watch that one? We should. It's so good. Look, if you want, I can put time back on the clock and replay it. You talking about a do-over, baby? Are you talking about a fucking do-over? That's not how the game is played. You can't do that. Fuck, believe this shit, nigga. Talking about doing it again. Look, I don't want any trouble, okay? Just... Ain't gonna be no trouble over no ball. Man, you're supposed to be the ref, right? Don't you stand up for your fucking self, you pussy. You can't just let any old motherfucking nigga get in your face. You understand? And walk away. Walk away. Turn around and walk the fuck away. Ignorant motherfucker. We cool? Yeah, we cool, baby. You tell your people to come on up here to the park Saturday at noon. Of course, you come on the west side again, baby. Without a ball, I'm going to light your ass up. All right. So, yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about that scene, too, is that we're watching the east side, west side gameplay and, you know, Kirk and Carver are there. And it's interesting because it's one of, it almost thinks like, oh, like, are East Side and West Side able to come together? Are they cooperating? But then that scene with the ref makes it very clear that this game is so much more than just a game. Yeah, and it's this kind of idea that they can uh, participate in the system that they agree to, which would be like a game with perfect information where everybody knows the rules. And that's exactly what happens when D'Angelo has that complete metaphor with the chess scene as he kind of aligns the drug trade to the game of chess where everyone knows what role they play and what they're allowed to do and not do. 
And I wonder if Marlowe is so problematic because he doesn't seem to acknowledge any rules at all. Right. And I mean, it kind of speaks to anarchy, right? Like if, if there's no game, if there's no rules, then how do you regulate anything? Then what, like, does that just make it completely meaningless? Yeah. Well, and I think like the game sort of falls apart around Marlowe because of that. Like you even see that with Bodhi kind of saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. Yeah. So it's almost like a moving from, um, not like a perfect system, but from something systematic to then pure chaos. Yeah. Chaos is a good way to put it. So um, just to sort of get to our main topic, which is going to be Tommy Carcetti, I noticed rewatching the series that Tommy Carcetti is often seen playing some kind of game in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think even is it... Is it the first scene that we're introduced to Carcetti that he's playing racquetball? Um, oh, gosh. Maybe it's not the very first time we're introduced to him, but I think it's one of the very first scenes that we do see Tommy Carcetti in. You're right. I don't remember the exact um, first scene, but we see him with so many games that it's hard to remember. Like, we see him playing racquetball with Tony Gray a few times. We see him playing Battleship with his daughter. We see him watching his son's little league game and then talking about that. And what I thought when I was sort of working through this and reading more about game theory was that Tommy Carcetti seems to always play these games that have a constant sum where there's a winner and a loser and the stakes are known and you will like either get the whole prize or no prize. For instance, Mm -hmm. racquetball, battleship, little league, Um, even the wagering about when he sees Teresa D'Agostino in the bar, he has this sort of bet with the councilman about, you know, can you buy her a drink or something like that? It's either you win all of the money or you win nothing. Yep. And that's kind of like his race generally with the, with the council as the, as the mayoral candidate. Yeah, well, I think like all of these scenes where we see him playing these different games sort of set him up as a super competitive person. And it's interesting because actually near the middle of the mayoral race, when Tommy Gray learns that, um, or sorry, Tony Gray learns that Tommy's going to run for mayor. Um, Tony feels betrayed because he was kind of thinking about throwing his hat in the ring and he asks uh, Tommy to run with him. And of course, at that time, Tommy doesn't disclose. So when he's, you know, Tommy is kind of wrestling with this and he's talking to his wife about it. And and she's saying, you know, maybe you tell him and then he goes for it. Like he goes next year, like, you know, maybe you let him take his turn or whatever. And she's trying to suggest ways um, that he can, repair the relationship with Tony Gray. But of course, this is not what Tommy actually wants. Yeah, which is um, sort of related to game theory in a way, because there's this idea of either cooperative games or non-cooperative games. And so in a constant sum game, which would be what we see Tommy Carcetti doing all the time, where either someone wins or loses, there's no um, gain from communication and cooperation because someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. So there's no point in kind of communicating and working together, but in a variable, variable, some game where 
you might win and lose a little bit for everybody, the communication and the cooperation is possibly an advantage to everyone. So I think like his um, sort of hesitation to have that conversation with Tony Gray speaks to the fact that he's used to these constant some games where there is no need to talk to anyone. And it is interesting when you think about game theory and television, because um, in, well, I guess maybe slightly after the wire airs is when we first see survivor come on television. Um, Yeah. Which I think is like, you know, I guess it was kind of the beginning of reality TV. I don't know if it's considered the the first reality TV show. T- to me, it seems like the first reality TV show. But it was very much set up as kind of this, this zero-sum game. There's one survivor, but of course you cannot really become the survivor by burning every bridge, you know, of your because eventually the they have to vote you as the survivor it it comes down to two people and you can't get to the final place if you don't find a way to cooperate and build these alliances and i think the evolution of survivor season to season to season and the strategies that people used um i think is kind of interesting yeah that's such a good example because it's very much the um it is a constant sum game a winner and a loser but it's also a game of imperfect information where cooperation is going to be key. And I think that's very much like the political game that Carchetti enters into. And mm-hmm. just the fact that Teresa D'Agostino becomes his actual strategist, that's kind of her entire job is to sort of think about what are the other players possibly going to do in this game of imperfect information and what's the most optimal choice for the Carchetti team. Right. And of course, that is why um, when Tommy's wife is suggesting ways to kind of get Tony's cooperation, they're not useful because they do need Tony. They needed him to make the mayoral bid because strategy wise, they wanted him to split the black vote. And uh, and so that's why I think he eventually feels like a pawn to, to kind of pull on that season one metaphor um, because he's, he eventually sees through what Tommy is doing. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think as soon as Tommy starts getting seriously into the politics of it is when he starts becoming more comfortable with this idea of variable sum and cooperation and communication to just win as much as possible, even when it means losing a little bit. So for instance, in season three, we see Carchetti talking to Burrell at that campaign event. This is before Carchetti decides to run for mayor, but only just like very slightly before. Mm -hmm. And there's a spinning wheel game that's going on in the background while they're talking which I think is a really good example of a variable sum because you might land on a hundred, you might land on a thousand or you might land on zero. So the outcome is kind of unknown. And that's exactly when Carcetti starts to explain to Burrell this sort of bargain that he's made where he says, well, you've got your Academy class, even though Burrell had to sort of take the fall. Mm hmm. And I actually, I think that is the same conversation where he's, he is talking about the Little League game because he's actually been tricked into meeting Burrell. Um, well, no, Tommy wasn't tricked. Burrell is tricked into meeting Tommy and, um, and is obviously feeling a bit 
played. Uh, and then, of course, that's when Tony or Tommy says, you know, who keeps score when he's talking about the, the, car- the Little League game? Yeah, which is just a really interesting moment because I don't really know how to interpret Tarkitty sometimes because he has these very, um, I guess, like politician style favorable lines like that one where it's like, oh, who keeps score? You know, it's kids. But then he's ruthless in a lot of ways. So I don't know if lines like that are him being um, disingenuous and just kind of putting on this public front or if he actually means it in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think, I think at first Tommy wants to win. And so he, that's when he starts making those, you know, ridiculous promises to the police force and about the overtime and everything. And then once he actually does realize he's, he's won and gets into the job, I I do, I think he does care about the city. I, I do believe he cares about Baltimore. Um, but when he gets into the job, he realizes actually how complicated it is. And I think instead of trying to stick it out and, and do good, he then that competitive side of him takes over again. And that's when he starts um, strategizing on how he gets to the, to the governor's race. So when he says like, Oh, who keeps score about the little league? Do you think he genuinely means that? No, I think he was saying it as a way to, uh, to ease Burrell's hurt feelings at the trick. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Because I don't know if it's that same episode or maybe just a few episodes later when he ends up like sleeping with the women at the campaign rally, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which really is very revealing of who Carcetti is. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's kind of at first portrayed as this all American wholesome guy. Yeah. Well, and so I think all of the games that we see him playing and all of this sort of competitive streak that emerges in Carcetti, like when he starts to lose it during the mayoral race, I think that that is because he's so accustomed to winning in a constant sum game where someone either wins or loses. And so it's very um, unfamiliar to him to be in this kind of competition where he they like may well lose or may well have to compromise yeah and I think it's interesting because there's such a duality to him that there are also people like characters that that are that surround him that never do question his intentions like I think it's an interesting um contrast between his wife and Teresa D'Agostino Teresa sees I think quote-unquote the real Tommy she sees this game strategist side of him but even though he's cheating on his wife and he's inappropriate and and all this stuff we never see her lose faith in him she never doesn't support him she never questions his motives or questions where he's been or anything like that like his wife is a is like almost like maybe she's supposed to represent the view of the the Baltimore people who voted him in and see him as this good, perfect man. Um, because I think it's, yeah, she never gets suspicious. Unlike, uh, McNulty's wife, who of course is always suspicious. Right. Well, and, uh, Carcetti's wife, I always thought it was kind of 
interesting how the more his political career is on the rise, the more her styling changes and becomes very sort of Jackie O. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they kind of mold her in the background into that. um, Maybe pawn is another good word to use, but just um, the right prop for him in his public image. Right. But when he has this freak out, we should watch that. He has a fit uh, when he thinks he's going to lose. Let's watch that scene. Hey, Norman. Remember we had for dinner last night? Tuna sub. I ate in the car. When I'm finished writing my memoirs, that should be in there, no doubt. You see what I just ate? In the car? A fucking tuna sub. In order to prevent distemper, Norman, you must vary the candidate's menu. If you're done chewing, let's give these new radio spots a listen. We've seen what Tommy Carcetti can do at City Hall as a councilman. While the current administration bent to special interests, Tommy Carcetti sponsored legislation that is protecting jobs at the port by preventing the overdevelopment of our waterfront. 300,000. Great. Thanks for sharing. For homeownership that prevented budget cuts to vital city services. Trash Three and five zeros. Mayor's latest TV buy-in is four weeks out. Turn that shit off! You don't like the spots? I read the copy before studio mix. I think they're strong. They're bullshit! Weak! Bullshit! I wouldn't vote for me! Fuck! Fuck Royce! Fuck Tony Gray! Fuck me! Where am I going again? One of those neighborhoods between Oliver and Middle East. Middle East. Well, that's a good name for it. Fucking Fallujah. Command performance. Miss Victorina Simmons. She holds sway over two big vote precincts, no matter who the EDC's lying down with. Fucking Royce. 300,000. Like it's fucking water. And then there's also Reverend Garnett. What are they complaining about today, fucking shithole of a city? Whining bastards. Bitching about the trash or the crime or this or that. It's my fucking fault it went to shit. These motherfuckers. Boss. They can bite my white ass. Simmons. Okay, yeah, he definitely, this is where he is kind of ready to just call it all in. Yeah, and it's shortly after that that we see him um, kind of being late for whatever his commitments are because he's playing Battleship with his daughter. So it's kind of like going back to that very simple game where it's one opponent and you're going to win or you're going to lose. Right, and so... I think it also maybe in one way speaks to like a childness, childishness of Tommy. Yeah, I think so. I think it's sort of an immaturity on his part because he's like a um, sore loser, I guess, is what he is. Yeah. But Definitely. somehow, you know, starts to adapt to this uh, new game theory that he's presented with and then ends up on top. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then we never really do see him wrestle with how he got there. I think like Norris calls him out at one point, um, but he never does. He never does have a crisis of conscious conscience um, about how he got to win. Yeah. In a way it's kind of like uh, Templeton, how Templeton manipulated the system he was working in to rise as high as he could. And then we really never see any consequences for that. Yeah. 
which is just like a classic David Simon character, right? He doesn't, he doesn't give us the happy ending. Yeah. And it's like some people or characters who kind of don't want to play the game as strategically as possible. They're the ones with the less fortunate outcomes. Um, McNulty maybe being one example. Yeah. Well, this is, I think, really interesting. And I, I, I think you really pulled out a lot of symbolism from game theory that applies perfectly to Tommy Carcetti. Yeah, well, I mean, and anyone can feel free to tell us if we've sort of butchered the interpretation of game theory, because this is new to me, and I think also to you, Bailey. But I yeah. was just really, really struck when I rewatched it, how pervasive the scenes are of Carcetti playing some kind of game. And I, I don't think that that's um, any kind of coincidence. I think that really is meant to sort of develop him as a character. For sure. So tell us what you think. Do, what is, is Carcetti genuine? Um, have we, have we nailed him by saying that he's insincere in his, um, keeping of the score or not caring who keeps the score. Uh, we would love to hear from you. So you can either tweet us at rewired podcast, or you can email us podcast.rewired at gmail.com. And we'll be back with another episode soon in our now we're on season three. So we'll be back soon enough and we'll see you next time. Way down, Way down in the hole. In the hole.